Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Uh, Well, I'm sure you've seen at some point some images uh, like this uh, on the internet. Um, Tradies, do-it-yourself projects with some very dodgy workplace um, safety or or, uh, photos like this. That one on the left is a special favourite of mine. (laughs) That's just quite incredible, isn't it? I mean, maybe you've been in a similar situation. (laughs) Well, you uh, you don't have to own up to it. Uh, But you know what is worse than no workplace safety practices? Really, really bad safety, workplace safety practices. You see, what's worse than working on a roof with no safety harness? That sounds pretty bad, but I'll tell you what's worse. Working on a roof with a rope around your neck (laughs) as a safety harness. Uh, I mean, I really hope this photo is a joke, hopefully. (laughs) But maybe not. It's hard to believe anyone would be this stupid. But aside from uh, stupid examples like this, the point is that sometimes you can actually make things worse by giving yourself the illusion of safety. Uh, You might put yourself in more dangerous situations, thinking, it's all right, I'm okay. Got that rope around my neck. Uh, It's a false sense of assurance, isn't it? In fact, your safety measures are actually exposing you to greater danger. And I want to suggest that someone's religion can be a lot like that. It can give you a false sense of assurance and hope while it's actually taking you further away from God. And the worst kind of religion, the most dangerous kind of false religion, is the kind that looks almost like the real thing. It makes you feel like you've got the real thing. That's the kind of religion that we find in Judges 17 and 18. We see man-made religion mixed in with worship of the Lord, the one true God. And people don't even seem to realize what they're doing. They're really, they're climbing up on a roof with a rope around their neck, thinking they've got the latest and greatest safety harness. These chapters, I think, are a warning of what can happen when we lose touch with God, when we lose touch with what He actually requires of us. And we effectively make up our own gods, make up our own religion, but then we tell ourselves we've got the real thing. These chapters, they encourage us to keep coming back to God's Word in humility and to give thanks for our good King Jesus, who redeems us from empty and false religion and who gives us the real thing. But before we dive into the details of these chapters, it's important to appreciate the context. Uh, In the Chinese uh, congregation and here in the uh, English service, we've been going through judges, but at at different um, speeds. Um, Hopefully, though, you'll notice that this episode begins differently to the stories that have come before. You see, most of the book uh, of Judges, it's stories of these judges or redeemers, that God raises up to save his people from foreign oppression, which God has actually uh, himself subjected his people to because of their sin. And so each episode follows the same basic pattern. Uh, Again, the Israelites do 
what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. They do evil, they worship false gods, God hands them over to the enemies, they cry out to God, God has mercy and raises up a redeemer. But we've come to the end of those stories. Samson, uh, that we looked at here in the English service uh, last week, he was the final judge. Uh, and so in the, in the last part, in chapters 17 to 21, there are no judges, there's no foreign enemies mentioned. Uh, and so these chapters, they form a kind of epilogue to the book, an epilogue to the stories of the judges. And spoiler alert, it's not a happy ending. Um, you know, in the classic Greek dramas, there was comedies with happy endings, that's where we get our romantic comedies from, and there were tragedies with sad endings. And the book of Judges is a tragedy. And these chapter, chapters, the, the epilogue to the book, they make that clear. Uh, and as we've seen, in fact, as we were warned at the beginning of the book, the story of, the, of Judges, it's really a downward spiral. The Judges themselves have become less godly hero and more pathetic zero. And the people of Israel, well, they've just got worse and worse in their idolatry. And so these final chapters, they, they reveal the consequences the reality of life in Israel resulting from this sad downward spiral. So as we heard in the Bible reading in chapter 17 of the book of Judges, we meet a man named Micah, uh, and we hear about him and his mother creating an idol and setting up a shrine complete with a priest and the religious gear that he needs. It's like a whole homemade temple. It starts with Micah confessing to his mother that he's the one who stole her 1,100 shekels of silver. Uh, he heard her utter a curse on the one who stole it, and that seems to have prompted him to, to fess up. And his mother is quick to forgive. Oh, the Lord bless you, my son. Not sure it's a very generous response. Um, her curse uh, is exchanged for a blessing. Or is it? You see, from this point on, mother and son seem to think life is going from good to great, uh, for a while anyway. But it's from this point that things really take a turn for the worse from God's perspective. See, the mother decides to consecrate the silver to the Lord. Now, if that was the end of the story, that'd be great. Uh, you know, her son uh, gets greedy, steals her money, but then he, he uh, is convicted, he gives it back, and uh, then out of gratitude for God's work in his heart, the mother dedicates it to the Lord. End of story, that'd be great. But no, what does she mean by dedicating it? Well, she sets apart the silver to the Lord for her son to make an overlaid image with silver. And so after the silver is returned, she takes a chunk of it, about two and a half kilograms worth of silver, to a silversmith who uses it to make an idol, which is then put into Micah's house. Now, the narrator reports these things very matter-of-factly, but it's terribly ironic. God explicitly bans his people from making idols, uh, either to represent him or any other god or thing. Uh, in the Ten Commandments, given on Mount Sinai, so it's not an obscure commandment, in the Ten Commandments, God says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters underneath the earth. And later, God tells his people, do not make cast images of gods for yourselves. And here, Micah's mother consecrates this silver as a holy gift set apart for the Lord to do the very thing he tells her not to do. It's kind of like a child giving their father a punch in the face as a Father's Day gift, isn't it? Or saying, I dedicate this, this day, Father's Day, as a special day in honor of my dad, 
to scream and fight and be disobedient all day. But Micah seems to see no problem with this. Uh, in fact, Micah had a shrine, literally a house of gods already on the go. And this fancy new idol, it'll be just perfect for it. So he complements it with some household gods, small idols and figurines thought to bring luck and prosperity to the household, uh, and also an ephod, this priestly garment for divining the will of God, and even a priest. He takes it upon himself to install one of his own sons as a priest to serve in his homemade house of God. See, what's described here is full-blown idolatry. It's got nothing to do with knowing and worshipping the Lord, the God who redeemed Israel and revealed his law to them so they might live as his holy people. But Micah and his mum seem to think it's the real deal. It's their own way of worshipping the Lord. And that's why the narrator sums up the situation like this in verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Micah and his mum were doing what they saw fit when it came to religion. And they were not alone. They were an example of a whole nation full of spiritually confused people. And the second half of the chapter confirms this picture. Uh, we meet a, a new character, a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, Levites were the tribe that were set apart for priestly service. And this young Levite is wandering the hills looking for a place to settle down. And when Micah comes across him looking for a place to settle down, well, he can't believe his luck. So he invites him to move in as his own personal priest and, and he'll be looked after, he'll be paid well. There's no more need to, you know, settle for one of his sons serving as the family priest when he now has a real Levite. And if Micah had any qualms about his homemade temple and religious setup before, well, he doesn't anymore. Verse 13, now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. You can almost smell the irony dripping uh, out of the pen of the narrator as he writes this verse. There's nothing about this situation that would be pleasing to God, that would ensure God's favour and blessing. He's hired a Levite to serve at his house of idolatry, all in the name of the Lord, ignorantly smiling up at God, looking for the blessings to come pouring down. This is the fruit of Israel compromising on God's commands, ignoring what God has revealed to them, allowing the nations around them to shape their understanding of who God is and what it meant to serve him. Now, we've seen that in the increasing influence of the nations on Israel through the book, uh, and this is the situation we end up with. People thinking they are worshipping the Lord when they are, in fact, breaking the most basic commands and worshipping false gods, idols that they have made themselves with priests that they have commissioned themselves. Now, the book of Judges has shown us that a military leader, a political leader, it's not enough. Israel needs a ruler, a, a king, who will lead them in obedience to God. That's what they need. Now, of course, as the story of the Bible goes on, we find out that merely installing a king like the nations around them, well, that doesn't solve the problem. Most of the kings of Israel, in fact, lead the people deeper into idolatry rather than obedience to God's will. Now, God's people need a king who will conquer their hearts who will renew their spirit. You see, the good news of Jesus isn't just the good news that you can be forgiven for all the wrong things that you've done. Of course, it is that, that, that is good news. But it's more than that. 
It's also the good news that God has established His Son as the King that we truly need. As the Apostle Paul writes, he is the the root of Jesse, the, the, the great grandson of Jesse, who has arisen to rule over the nations, the hope of the nations. Through the good news of Jesus, people of all nations, Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, they become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus redeems us from an empty way of life, a religion that means nothing, ideology and, and behaviours that, that actually alienate us from God and instead enables us to serve God in truth and righteousness. So this, this picture of Micah and his mum stumbling along in their ignorant idolatry, seemingly not even aware of how far they are wandering from God, it's all meant to make us more grateful for what we have in Jesus, to submit ourselves all the more gladly before our great high priest and our, our righteous king who leads us in faithful worship of the one true God. Well, after the story of Micah and his mom and their house of idolatry, we get another story in chapter 18. But it's a story that intersects with Micah's story and builds on it. Um, The introduction to the chapter, in those days Israel had no king, that marks a break, the beginning of a new section. But also tells us that it's ultimately the same kind of story. See, we're about to hear something along the same lines of what we've just heard. People acting out of self-absorbed ignorance of God, all the while thinking that they're probably doing just what God wants them to do. Now, rather than the story of one man in a household, it's a story of a whole tribe. In those days, the tribe of the Danites, we read, was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Uh, And from the perspective of the Danites, this what we're about to read, it seems like a wonderful story of God's, uh, God's guidance and his provision, a story of divine blessing. And, and there's lots of parallels to the story of Israel's original conquest of the land, only things seem to go much better this time. See, just as Israel sent spies into the land, the Danites now send five of their leading men to spy out the land and explore it. And those spies enter the hill country of Ephraim, And they just happen to come across the house of Micah and spend the night there. But when they're there, they recognize a familiar voice, the young Levite. What brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? They ask. The Levite explains how Micah has hired him as his priest. And the Danites, the the spies, well, they don't seem troubled by Micah hiring him as a personal priest and they don't bat an eye at all the idols around. They think... This is great. Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. They want to feel confident that their mission has God's blessing. And the priest, well, he's more than happy to oblige. He says to them, go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. Now, the fact that he's just told them that he's a priest for hire, serving in a dodgy house of gods, rather than a genuine priest serving at the actual house of God in Shiloh, Well, none of that bothers them. They've got what they wanted. The assurance that their mission is going to go well. You see, man-made religion, it's designed to give you what you want from it, isn't it? That's the whole point. It gives you the assurance that you're looking for. Uh, Too bad it's a false sense of assurance. 
But as far as the Danites are concerned, the Levite must be the real deal because their mission seems completely successful. Their journey does seem to have the Lord's approval. From verse 7 we read, So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtaol, their fellow Danites asked them, How did you find things? They answered, Come on, let's attack them. We've seen the land, it's very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you'll find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into our hands, a land that lacks nothing, whatever. Now, like the original story of the spies of Israel in the land of Canaan, they come across a land that seems to lack nothing. But unlike that story, which had scary fortified cities like Jericho and and big people, here they find an unprotected and unsuspecting people living peacefully, ripe for the picking. And so the spies eagerly whip the rest of the tribe into action. Come on, let's go. And they see God's providential hand in all of it, don't they? Why not? They inquired of the priest. They got their reassurance. They found what they were, what they were looking for. Surely this is God's gift to them. And so from verse 11, we see the tribe embrace this opportunity. Unlike the original generation of the Israelites, these guys are not afraid. 600 men from the tribe of the Danites set out armed for battle. But on the way, as they pass through the hill country of Ephraim and come to Micah's house, the five men uh, who had spied out the land of Laish, they see an opportunity. Did you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now, you know what to do. Didn't our good fortune come from the blessing of the priest at this house, the spies are saying? Why just have that that one-off blessing? Why not take the source of the blessing with us? So verse 15, they turned in there and they went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside, took the idol, the ephod and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. Now I'm not sure what the priest thought they were doing at first, but once he sees them coming out of the house with, all, with the idol and all the other things, he speaks up, hey, what are you doing? And they answered him, verse 19, be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us, be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? Well, the young man doesn't need to hear any more. He's convinced. In fact, he's very pleased. You see, the trouble with a man-made, hire-for-service priest is that they are not there for you or for God. They're in it for themselves, aren't they? And so they'll go with the highest bidder or the situation that gives them the most power and prestige. And so he smiles, he gladly shakes hands with his new people. Verse 20, he took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol, and went along with the people. And putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and they left. But it's not long before Micah and his neighbours notice what's happened. Verse 22, When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were 
called together and overtook the Danites. And they shouted after them. Uh, The Danites turned and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? Now, understandably, Micah is a little bit exasperated by their response at this point. Verse 24, he replied, you took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? Of course I'm upset. Give me back my stuff. And the Danites answered, don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Now at this point, things are no longer going Micah's way. He takes up, takes in the size of their army, he ponders their threats, and his shoulders slump, turns around, shuffles home. Not a happy ending for him. The sun is not shining down on him after all. His sense of assurance earlier, his confidence that now I know that the Lord will be good to me, it's unraveled. Maybe it was misplaced confidence. Perhaps hiring a Levite to be a personal priest in his homemade house of gods, maybe that hasn't secured the Lord's favour after all. Sadly, I don't think Micah had such a moment of realisation. I think he just wallowed in his sense of loss, confused as to why God had allowed such bad things to happen to him. You see, the real tragedy is how devastated Micah is. You see, in a sense, all he has lost is his dodgy idol, his household gods, his homemade ephod, and his illegitimate priest. None of his family were hurt, none of his animals have been stolen, nothing bad has actually happened to him personally. It's only the elements of his false religion that have been taken away. And he even unwittingly articulates how worthless they are. You took the gods I made. He's made them. They're not gods. They're things that he has fashioned himself. But how does he describe them? He sees them as everything. What else do I have? He cries out to the Danites. How can you do this to me? This is the nature of idolatry, isn't it? We, We fashion idols ourselves... And then we give them a value way above what they are really worth. We convince ourselves that they are worthy of our trust, our devotion, our obedience. We, we wrap up our identity in them. We can so easily treat money as if it will protect us and give us everything that we want. Even though it's vulnerable to decay, to theft, to failing economies, our bodies our achievements, our relationships, technologies, gadgets. You can treat this stuff as your greatest good, the centre of your life. But when your body fails, your achievements come unstuck, your relationships aren't what you'd hoped for, your tech becomes obsolete, you're left empty. What else do I have? The emptiness of idolatry. Well, that's the last we hear from Micah, the man. From this point on, it's a story of the idols that he has made and the Danites. The narrator continues the story of the Danites on their quest to conquer the unsuspecting town of Laish, with their confidence boosted now that they have Micah's gods and his priest. From verse 27, we read, 
Then they took what Micah had made. Just notice that subtle description. They took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against the people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. That just doesn't sound right, does it? They come upon this peaceful, unsuspecting town, isolated from any help, this helpless city that doesn't stand a chance, and they slaughter the residents and burn the city to the ground. They take it for themselves. That sounds wrong, but is it? You see, the city technically falls within the territory that God had promised the Israelites. It's part of the promised land. These people of Laish are Canaanite people. God had ordered the Israelites to totally destroy the original inhabitants of the land, lest the idolatry of those people corrupt the faith of the Israelites. In fact, it's precisely their failure to destroy the original inhabitants as they took the land in the first place that has led to this downward spiral that we see in the book of Judges. They compromised when they should have been ruthless. And yet, I think we are meant to feel that something's not quite right with this picture. You see, this was not the land that the Danites had been allocated. They were allocated land way down south near Judah, but they couldn't take that land. Despite God's promise to drive out their enemies before them if they persisted in faith, God's repeated promises, they gave up. They looked for something easier, a peaceful, unsuspecting town that never stood a chance, a city they could take in their own strength. And what happens next makes it clear that the story of the Danites migrating north, it's not a story of God's people conquering the land. It's rather a story of a confused and ungodly people corrupting the land. We we read on, the Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. Verse 29, they named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. And what did they do once they moved in? Verse 30, There the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. So the Danites, they take the corrupted, the elements of the corrupted religion that they had stolen from Micah and set up a center of corrupt worship of the Lord in their new stolen homeland. The reference to the house of God in Shiloh, the legitimate house of the Lord, with the tabernacle of God's presence, well, that's contrasted with the worship of the idol that Micah had made. They think they're conquering the land of the Canaanites in the name of the Lord, when in fact the Canaanites, well, they've already conquered their hearts and their minds, haven't they? That's what's going on here. God gave the land of Canaan to the Israelites so that they could purify it of idolatry and worship him in truth and holiness. But that's not what's happening here. They are so far gone, they don't even see the problem with what they're doing. All they see is the pedigree of their priest. He's a descendant of Moses himself. What more could you ask for? They thought they were securing blessing for themselves by stealing Micah's gods and priests. As far as they can tell, it's all gone to plan. God's face is shining down on them. But 
Like a man repairing a roof with a noose around his neck, they're committing themselves to a path of, of confused, corrupt worship that will ultimately see them destroyed and rejected from God's promised land. See, verse 30, it hints at this dark future. Did you notice it? The descendants of this Levite served until the captivity, the time of the captivity of the land, until the time that God brought final judgment on the northern kingdom for all their sin and idolatry, and they were annihilated. It was the idolatry of Israel, exemplified by the tribe of Dan, that brought about this judgment. In fact, it was at Dan, in this city, that Jeroboam, the first king of the northern, um, the northern kingdom of Israel, that, that he set up one of the golden calves which led Israel astray. See, Jeroboam, he was worried that people would keep going down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, and then that they would revert back to the king of Judah if they kept doing that. So, we read in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 12, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go down to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And one he set up in Bethel, and the other, where? In Dan. Where better? With their history, the people of Dan were probably only too happy to have the golden calf set up in their city. Like their founding fathers, stealing Micah's homemade gods, they probably thought it would just secure God's blessing on them. Now, it's a sad story, isn't it? bit of a downer. <laughs> uh, a man, a household, a whole tribe getting further and further away from God, all the while thinking they are securing God's favor. As I said at the start, these chapters, they're a sober warning against the danger of man-made religion. In particular, they're a warning against the danger of thinking that your man-made religion is the real thing. Now, for some of us, that might be a spirituality, uh, a worldview, uh, maybe a, a religion that, that really has nothing to do with Christianity, uh, nothing to do with the faith revealed in the Bible. Uh, whatever its form uh, and, and wherever it's come from, if it's not from the God who has actually revealed himself in the person of Jesus, uh, in the pages of the Holy Scriptures, well then, it, it's a false man-made religion and it's only going to take you further away from the God who is actually there. Any sense of hope and assurance that you might have from it, it's a hollow hope. It will come unstuck in the end. Now, that, that might sound blunt, but I'm convinced that the, it's the truth that you need to hear. But for others of us, I'm guessing the majority of us here this morning who identify as Christians, we're more in danger of slipping over time into some form of Christianity that is really a corruption of the real thing. It can happen on a large institutional scale, like the corruption of the church prior to the Reformation 500 years ago, or the nationalism that enabled so many Germans in the early 20th century to justify what the Nazis were doing, or perhaps like the way evangelical faith in America has become so politicized. Is Jesus their saviour, or is it actually the Republican Party? Sometimes it's hard to tell. Churches and whole Christian traditions can confuse outer forms of faith, the, the structures, the rituals, the traditions of worship with the faith itself. You know, organs are pleasing to God, drums and guitars are of the devil, certain liturgies must be used, or a certain vibe must be created. 
my thing. As long as I take communion, then that's all that matters. Keep coming back, having my dose. Or, you know, no one can move the pulpit or the communion table, things like that. Maybe I, I come to church because the worship makes me feel a certain way. That's what matters. It's all a confusion of culture and experiences and tradition with the actual worship of God. And as individuals in our hearts, we can be lured away from faithfully following Jesus to really just chasing, chasing our own gods dressed up as Christian folk. For example, and this is just one particular example, Christians have been guilty of worshipping marriage in the name of serving Christ. You know, God has someone special planned for me, we might tell ourselves. Uh, it becomes the focus of our hopes. In fact, the promise of the perfect spouse down the line that God has prepared for me, well, that, that's actually the reason deep down that we're putting in all this effort to serve God, waiting for, for him to pay up. And then we know God, well, he really is blessing us now that we've found that soulmate. And then devotion to our partner, finding fulfillment, comfort, assurance from them. It creeps in, it takes the place of devotion to Jesus. And, and yet, it can all be packaged in the name of serving Jesus. And that's just one example. It happens with career, with money, with leisure. Things that are meant to be good gifts, context for worshipping God and giving thanks to him, we turn them into gods. We worship them, packaging it as serving God. You see, if, if our hearts, uh, in our hearts, in our priorities, in our decisions, in our ethics, if there's no difference between us and the surrounding culture, except for the label Christian, well, that's not what God is calling us to, is it? That's not the real thing. We're actually worse off than those who have no faith because we've given ourselves that false sense of assurance um, that we're okay, you know, that our religion, it looks just enough like the real thing. Micah and the Danites might have said they were worshipping the Lord. That's what they thought they were doing, but they were worshipping idols. We don't want to make the same mistake. So let's embrace true worship. Let's keep coming back to God's word, humbly listening to him, submitting ourselves to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We want to examine our life, examine our worship in light of the Bible, allowing the living and active word of God to expose our hearts, to, to lead us in serving God faithfully. We want to embrace the work of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts, exposing those idols, leading us in repentance and faith, bit by bit, day by day. As uh, Joshua exhorted the people at the end of his life, leading into the book of Judges, let's hold on to the real thing. Let's actually listen to what he says. Let's heed the call to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the sober warning of these chapters. And we pray that you would help us to hear that warning and to serve you wholeheartedly, trusting in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.